All right, the Gospel of Mark, chapter number 6. I want to begin reading here in verse number 1. And I'm going to read here uh, down to verse number 6. So verse number 1 down to verse number 6. And the Bible says, And he, speaking of Christ, went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples follow him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his name, or by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joses and Judah? And his sister, are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord. And God, we are grateful for this opportunity just to be able to open up your word once again. We have to continue on with the series of the Gospel of Mark. God, I pray that you would prepare our hearts now, Lord, to receive the truth before us. God, I pray, Lord, you would help me, Father, as I teach and as I preach this morning. Pray just give me clarity in my thoughts and in my words, Lord, and help me, God, to say what you would have me to say, Lord. And, Lord, to honor Christ and to honor your word. Father, God, I pray you'd speak to hearts today, Lord. God, I pray that you would just uh, help us to have attentive ears, Lord, or teachable hearts, Father, I pray. And God, I pray you'd receive the glory. Do your work, I pray, through your word, by the Spirit of God. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want to go ahead and get a map up on the screen here for you to see, just to kind of show you where we are uh, in relation to where Christ has been and where Christ is today. So, again, we've seen over the past couple of weeks, again, the travels of Christ. Again, Capernaum is up here. This is where Christ has spent much of his time on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. It was across the Sea of Galilee to the country of the Gadarenes over here, where Christ healed the demon-possessed man. Again, Christ came back to this side of the sea. And then today we're going to find Christ makes a trip down to a little town of about 500 people called Nazareth. Now, there's really not much significance with Nazareth, Nazareth except for the fact, uh, which is really a big, very significant thing, is the fact that this is where Jesus grew up. All right, not where he was born, but this is the boyhood home of Christ. This is where he lived. This is where his, his earthly family lived until he began his public ministry at the age of 30. So we find here Christ is making a trip down here to the city of Nazareth. And we'll see why in just a little bit. Uh, Nazareth, as you can see here, is located about 25 miles to the southwest of, of Capernaum, which is kind of the home base of the public ministry of Christ. It was a small village, like I said earlier, only about 500 people that, grew, that lived in that village. Uh, but it's significant because this is where Jesus was from. This is where he began uh, or this is where he grew up before he began his public ministry. And although the Gospel of Mark does not record it, this is not the first visit of Christ uh, during his public ministry to the city of Nazareth. If you would take your Bibles, hold your spot here in Mark, take your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 4. 
the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 4. Today's visit that we find here in Mark 6 is Christ's second visit during his public ministry, and it'll be his final visit to the city of Nazareth before uh, his crucifixion. What we read here in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus, again, during this, during this time of his public ministry, that he has visited uh, Nazareth before. And he has presented himself as the Messiah, as the one who has fulfilled the messianic promises that are found throughout the Old Testament. So in Luke chapter number four, I want to read about the first visit of Christ to Nazareth again during his public ministry. And I want to begin reading here in verse number 16. And the Bible says, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had found or when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now pause right there. All right, why is it significant that Jesus read this passage here that is taken from Isaiah 61? Well, this passage here that Jesus opened up to and he is quoting from is a messianic prophecy. It is a messianic passage. And notice that Jesus opens this up in the local synagogue in Nazareth, and he applies this passage to himself. In other words, he is claiming before all his his family and friends and those that he grew up with that he was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah, that he was the one who fulfilled this messianic prophecy that was written by Isaiah many years before. Notice verse 20 in Luke 4. And he closed the book. And gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And in other words, can the Messiah is standing in front of you. The Son of God is standing in front of you. That's what he was claiming as he stood in this local synagogue in Nazareth. Before his friends and family. Before the people he grew up with. Verse number 22, and all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Verse 23, and he said unto them, ye surely, you will surely say unto me this proverb, physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in this country. Verse 24, and he said, verily, I say unto you. No prophet is accepted in his own country. We'll see how that's going to be fulfilled. Jesus was accepted elsewhere, but was Jesus accepted in his own hometown? No, he wasn't. Jump down to verse number 28 of the same chapter. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him unto the brow of the hill where on their city was built. That they might cast him down headlong. And he passing through the midst of them went his way. And we find he, he went back, he came to the he came to Capernaum, so he went back to the city of Capernaum after that. Alright, many people believe, again, this could be the site, this hill right here in Nazareth, 
could be the place where they tried to take Christ and tried to cast him off headlong down the hill. They wanted to get rid of him. They were filled with wrath. They couldn't explain what he had just said. They couldn't explain who he was. I mean, to them, this was just Joseph's son. This is just the carpenter. I mean, as we'll see in today's passage, this is, again, his brothers are here and his sisters are here. I mean, he's just like one of us. And he's claiming to be the Messiah. They were filled with great anger. They were filled with great wrath and great indignation. They tried to cast him off the brow of this hill and uh, whereon the city was built. Come back to Mark chapter number 6. Mark chapter number 6, we find here that Jesus did not receive a welcomed reception uh, from those in his hometown the first time that he visited. As long as he was just another one of them, again, they could accept him. But as soon as he announced, I'm the Messiah, I am the one who fulfills those verses in Isaiah 61, they were filled with great indignation. So we find here in Mark chapter number 6 that Jesus decides to make a second visit to the city of Nazareth. And this is the final visit. One last visit to the city of Nazareth. One last time going home. Going to his boyhood home and giving these people one last chance to repent. One last chance to recognize him as the son of God. Let's consider a couple of things from this passage here in Mark 6. First of all, let's consider the reason for his visit. The reason for his visit, which really is implied, uh, but take a look at verse number 1 through 2. The Bible says he went out from thence and came into his own country, speaking of Nazareth, and his disciples follow him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. All right, so let's keep that in mind. Jesus has just went, uh, again, from ministering on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. He has just traveled this 25-mile distance down to Nazareth, his boyhood home. Uh, Jesus has already been there before. He's already presented himself as the Messiah. Uh, they rejected him, and they were hostile towards Christ. They did not want him anymore. They, ca- they tried to cast him out of the city. They tried to cast him down headlong down a hill. So why would Jesus go back? Again, and as we answer that question, that really explains the reason for this visit. And what we have here is an example of the patience of God. This morning in Sunday school, we talked about the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. 19 out of 19 kings in the northern kingdom were bad kings. And yet God chose to wait 250 years before he judged them. The southern kingdom, most were bad, a few were good. God decided to wait 400 years before he brought in the Babylonians to judge them. And what do we see again, not just in those examples, but even here, why would Christ go back to Nazareth? He's already been rejected. They've already, again, clearly said no to his claims uh, as the Messiah. They've rejected his claims. They don't want him in the city any longer. And we find here an example of a very important truth in the Bible that displays the character of God. And that is the patience of God. That is the long-suffering of God. God is a long-suffering God. God is a patient God towards sinners. Jesus made it clear when he came into this earth that he was on a rescue mission to seek and to save that which was lost, according to Luke 19, verse number 10. I mean, these people have already been given a chance to repent. So why go there again? And the answer to that why is because God is patient. 
Because God is a long-suffering God, meaning he suffers long with sinners. Again, many times, not just giving them an opportunity to to repent, but many opportunities to repent and receive him as Lord and Savior. Again, this is the testimony of the word of God. 2 Peter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Ezekiel 18, verse 23. The Bible says, Have I any pleasure at all at all the uh, or that uh, have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 18, verse 32, For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. So God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is a long-suffering God. He suffers long with sinners, giving them an opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent and believe the gospel. 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4, the Bible says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. That verse is not saying that all men will be saved, but is saying that it is God's will for all men to be saved. It is saying that it is God's desire for all men to come to a place of repentance. I mean, Jesus has died so that all men may be saved. 1 John 2, verse 2 says, And he is the propitiation for our sins, speaking of believers, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So the price has been paid. Anyone can be saved, but the question is, will they be saved? Will they receive the free gift of the gospel? The Bible makes it clear that Jesus has made this gift of salvation available to all. Whosoever will may come. Revelation 22, 17, and the spirit and the bride say, come and let him that heareth say, come and let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will let him take of the water of life freely. God gives a genuine offer of salvation to all men. He gives a genuine call to all men to repent and believe the gospel. Acts 17.30, In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. But here's the sad reality. Here's the tragedy of tragedies. That Jesus has, has, has paid the price for our sins. He has made salvation available to anyone. Whosoever will may come. The sad reality is that most will not come. And Jesus spoke to the unbelieving Jews of his day in John 5.40 and said this. He said, and he will not come to me that he might have life. It's not that they couldn't come. It's that they would not come. Jesus says he will not come to me that he might have life. If he would come, you could have life. You can have salvation. It's a free gift of God's grace. But the question is, will you come? Or will you be like those unbelieving Jews who would not come to Christ that they might have life? Eternal life is offered to all men, but when eternal life is rejected, and when men and women depart out of this life, 
the opportunity to be saved is over. The day of grace is ended. The offer of eternal life, the offer of salvation is eternally revoked. There's no do-overs. There's no second chances in after this life. There's no purgatory. All right. Once you exit this life, again, your decision is finalized. And of what you're going to do with Christ, whether to bow your knee to him and recognize him as your Lord and Savior, or whether to reject him and reject his free gift of salvation. Again, and although it's important for us, we see here and we see in other passages, yes, God is long suffering. Yes, God is patient. I think it also needs to be emphasized that one of the most dangerous things that people do is they presume upon the patience of God. They presume upon the long suffering of God, God, and they think since God has been patient today, surely God will be patient tomorrow and a week from now and a month from now and a year from now and a decade from now. God's patience will still be there. But the reality is that's not how it works. God's patience is for a season. God's long suffering is is for a season. He truly suffers long for a long time with sinful man. Giving him space to repent and believe the gospel. But the day comes when the chances to believe are over. When the day of grace is gone. Again, if somebody has the mentality, well, one day I'll get right with God. What are they doing? They are presuming upon the patience of God. None of us are guaranteed another day. None of us are guaranteed another breath. None of us are guaranteed another year upon this earth. But those who say, well, one day I'll bow bow the knee to Christ. One day I'll believe the truth of the gospel and I'll get saved. Maybe on my deathbed, I'll get saved. And what are you doing? You're presuming upon the patience of God. And you're rejecting the mercy of God. And the Bible makes it clear what you're doing is you're storing up unto yourself. Romans 2, 5 says, wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Yes, God is patient. But as men reject the grace of God, they're storing up wrath unto themselves against the day of wrath and against the day of judgment to come. You know, God's delay of judgment against unbelievers is really a token of his mercy. It is a sign. It is a proof. It is an evidence that God is a merciful God. Why is that? Because if we all got what we deserved the very first time I sinned, again, I, I, w- I would drop dead. But because God is long-suffering, again, God gives men many years. Some people 60, 70, 80, 90. Some even 100 you know, years to repent, to believe the gospel. And God is a patient God. So why did Jesus go back to Nazareth? Because God is not willing that any should perish. Not even those in Nazareth who had already rejected him, who tried to cast him down a hill, who cast him out of the city. Who clearly didn't want him being there. Christ didn't want any of them to perish. He wanted all of them to come to a place of repentance. And he would go one more time. And give them one more chance to repent. In the second visit to Nazareth. So let's see in the next couple of verses. How do the people respond to the visit of Christ? And the first thing we find here is the response of the people. Take a look at verse number two again. The Bible says that when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, 
From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judah and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. So notice here the people's response. The people, number one, they were astonished at the wisdom of his words. They were astonished at the wisdom of the words that he spoke with. But not only that, they were also they also marveled. They were astonished at his mighty works. Surely they had heard of all he had done in Capernaum and all he had done in the countryside and all he had done again up to this point in his public ministry. I mean, word spread rapidly of all that Christ had done. And surely they had heard of many of the works that Christ had done. These people here, they cannot deny the obvious. His words were divine words. His works were done according to divine power. So clearly he's the Messiah, right? Clearly this is the Son of God. He's not just the carpenter. No, this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. Listen to his words. Look at his works. Do not his works authenticate the words he is saying? You would think so. Again, if you you don't have to turn there, but in John or in Luke 7, 19, John the Baptist sent his disciples to ask of Jesus, Art thou he that should come? Or look we for another? So John the Baptist was asking, again, are you the anointed one? Are you the Christ? Are you the one that we've been looking for, the Messiah? Or should we look for another? And Jesus told those disciples, go back to John and tell him this. In Luke 7, verse 22 through 23. Go your way and tell John what things ye have seen and heard. How that the blind see, the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. To the poor the gospel is preached. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. So who is this one? Well, look at his works. Listen to what he says. Look at his miracles. The lame walk, the deaf hear, the blind see, the lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. I mean, this is clearly the one that is that the, that the Bible has described for us in the, in the Old Testament. This is clearly the one that fulfills Old Testament prophecy. This is clearly the Son of God. This is clearly the one that we have been looking for. And Jesus' words were authenticated by his miracles. So what about these people of Nazareth? Did they recognize that? Did they see, well, clearly his words are divine. Clearly his, the miracles he does, again, no mere man could do those. Clearly these are of divine origin and done through divine power. So what did the people do? Did they fall down before Christ and worship him as the anointed one? Worship him at the Messiah. Finally, the first time, they rejected him. But what about the second time? Will they finally believe upon him? Notice here the response. Verse number three, the Bible teaches us that instead of believing on Christ, they began to make excuses. They were so settled in their unbelief and in their pride against Christ that they tried to find some justification for not believing on Christ as the Messiah. I mean, they couldn't deny the obvious. His words were divine. His works were divine. But they didn't want to believe upon him. 
Unbelief had settled within their heart. Pride had settled in their hearts. Take a look at verse 3 again. They say this. They talk amongst themselves. Say, is not this the carpenter? Is not this the carpenter? I mean, Jesus is, I mean, we know him. He grew up with us. He's just the local carpenter who lives down the street from me. There's nothing special about him. We see that they had this, this, this preconceived, you could say, antagonism against Christ because they knew him. They were familiar with him. And because of that, their pride got in the way. Surely this couldn't be the Messiah. Surely this couldn't be the one that the Bible has prophesied. We see here that by referring to Jesus as the carpenter, it was not meant to be a, it was not meant to be a compliment. Again, really what they were saying is he's just a lowly carpenter. He's not trained like the rabbis of our day. I mean, our, our rabbis go off to school and they get trained. But this, this unlearned carpenter, who is he? Who does he think he is? Again, saying all these things. They have this antagonism against him. They say that he's the son of Mary, and which is also an insult. Because, again, people would refer to you as the son of your father, not the son of your mother. This is, he's the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judah and Simon. His sisters are here with us. And clearly Mary had more children. And later on, again, which goes against the Roman Catholic doctrine that Mary was a, a perpetual virgin. What we find here, again, they, they point to who Christ is. They, they try to find some reason, why, some excuse not to believe upon Christ. They're so settled in their unbelief. And their preconceived notions, and their prejudice against Christ, and their antagonism against Christ. They don't like him. They don't want him. They don't want him around. They can't deny the obvious, his words and his works, so they come up with some sort of justification not to believe upon him. He's just the carpenter. He's just the son of Mary. His brothers are here, and his sisters are here. He's just one of us. Nothing more. There's nothing special about this guy. He's just one of us. I like what one Bible commentator said, and I'll quote, he, he said this. Had he returned to Nazareth as a mighty conquering hero, they might have accepted him more readily. But he came in lowly grace and humility, and this offended them. The fact that he came in such humility, that he came in lowliness. Again, there's nothing that stood out about him. He wasn't some conquering hero. How did they respond? The Bible says, take a look at verse 3 again, the last part of the verse. It says, and they were offended at him. They were offended at him. And their prejudice against Christ was already set entrenched deep within their heart. Their unbelief was already entrenched within their heart. Nothing would convince them at this point. That he was the Messiah. There was no way that they would humble themselves, get rid of their pride, and actually admit that he's the Messiah. They wouldn't do that. They were offended at him. They stumbled over Christ. Christ became a stumbling block to them. And it's the same thing today. You know, the truth about Jesus Christ is, is offends many people. The truth about Jesus Christ, the claims of Christ, again become a stumbling block to many people who don't want to believe the gospel. In 1 Peter 2.8, Jesus is described as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. 
can many people stumble over Christ. He is a rock of offense. To those who are disobedient to the word of God, they stumble over the truth. They stumble over who Jesus is. I mean, consider the first coming of Christ. Jesus came to the nation of Israel. He offered himself as the Messiah. And what was the majority response? It was one of rejection. It was one of, again, they, 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 again he performed miracles. He showed the signs that he was truly the Son of God. Yet because of their pride, because of their unbelief, and they rejected him. In Romans 9, verse 31 through 33, the Bible says, But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Sion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. They were ashamed of Christ. They were offended at Christ. They stumbled over Christ. But the Bible says, blessed is the man that's not ashamed of me. Blessed is the man that is not offended in me. The Jewish leaders of Christ's day stumbled over him. They rejected him because of their unbelief. Just like the people of Nazareth, same thing. They stumbled over him because of their unbelief, which is really rooted in pride. But notice in verse 4, the response of Jesus. How does Jesus respond to their rejection? Verse number 4. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin. And in his own house. Now, this is what Jesus said the first time. Back in Luke chapter 4, verse 24, he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. So Jesus here is saying that, again, a prophet receives honor elsewhere, but among his own people, among his own kin, among his own family, in his hometown, a prophet is without honor. And that's exactly what we see in the life of Christ. Christ would go to other places and preach the gospel, and many people believe the gospel. But he goes back home. He goes to Nazareth. And what do the people do? The people that you would think would be the most ready to receive Christ were really some of the most resistant people to the ministry of Christ. So we see here, and Jesus was not accepted in his hometown a second time. His own relatives his own friends, his own family, except with the exception of Mary. Many of his brothers would get saved after the resurrection. But at this point, again, many of them have, are, again, are in rejection and, and unbelief still regarding who Christ is. One Bible commentator says this. He says, they were too proud to be taught by one who in family connections they took to be their equal or inferior. So the first time they were hostile towards Christ. They tried to cast him over a hill. This time, they were indifferent to Christ. They ignored him. And they, they, they didn't want to hear it anymore. They tried to come up with some excuse, some unreasonable excuse for not believing upon Christ as the Messiah. Take a look at verse number 5 through 6. We see, thirdly, the result of his visit. Verse 5. 
says, and he could there do no mighty work. Save, that word save means accept, that he laid his hands on a, upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching. There's only two occasions when the Bible says Jesus marveled at somebody's faith. In one case, it was, it was the presence of somebody's faith. In this case, it was the absence of somebody's faith. Jesus marveled at this. How could these people remain in unbelief? The very people that you would expect to receive Christ are the very ones that reject Christ. His own family, his own kin, his own friends, his own, his own neighbors that he grew up with are the ones that rejected him. In verse number five, we find here, he could do there no mighty work. Again, the people's unbelief hindered the work of God. Jesus couldn't do much there. He chose not to do many of his mighty miracles there because of the people's unbelief. We see that their unbelief limited the work of God. And that is truly the tragedy of unbelief. It hinders the work of God. It limits the work of God. Or as one commentator says, such unbelief as this has immense consequences of evil. It closes the channels of grace and mercy so that only a trickle gets through to the human lives in need. And we see the mercy of Christ. He did heal a few sick folk. That's all he did in Nazareth. Christ left. Christ went to the next villages. Christ went to the next towns. Christ went where he was welcome. Clearly he was not welcome in Nazareth, so he just healed a few sick folk and he left. He could do there no mighty works. Why? Because of the people's unbelief. Consider a couple of things with me. First of all, the danger of unbelief to the lost. And the danger of unbelief to the lost, John 3, 18 through 19. Jesus said, he that believeth on him, that is Christ, is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. And this is the condemnation. Again, that Jesus Christ, the light of the world, could go to a place like Nazareth, the place where you expect them to be the most receptive to Christ, and yet they reject the light they've been given. They condemned themselves because of their unbelief. The Bible makes it clear. Those who believe on Christ for salvation are not condemned. Those who believe not, unbelief, those who are unbelievers, remain in a state of condemnation. Revelation 21, verse 8. The Bible says, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And this is the sad reality. This is the danger of unbelief amongst the lost. It keeps them from the truth that can save them. It keeps them from eternal life. 
It keeps them from receiving the free gift of salvation that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And their unbelief results in eternal damnation. And even those who are indifferent about Christ and who remain in unbelief are just as guilty as those who are hostile towards Christ. You look at the first visit of Christ compared to the second visit of Christ. The first visit of Christ, they were hostile towards Christ. I mean, they tried to kill him. The second visit of Christ, they were just indifferent to Christ. They didn't want to hear him. And so they came up with some lame excuse to not believe upon Christ. That was totally unreasonable and illogical. But we see here in both cases, they remained in unbelief. Again, there are people who are hostile towards the gospel. They are hostile towards anything regarding Christianity. And you bring up Christ and they'll get angry with you. But on the other hand, there's actually a lot of people who are, who are just indifferent. They could care less. You know, It's not that they're, they're angry at, Christi- at Christians or Christianity. It's not that, again, they, they're hostile towards Christ, but they're indifferent to Christ. They could just care less. And the Bible makes it clear that they are just as guilty before God as the ones who are hostile towards Christ. We also see the danger of unbelief to the saved. You know, unbelief is, is something that affects the lost in a much greater way in the sense that it does result in eternal damnation. But even as a saved person, an unbelief will never result in eternal damnation. But it can result in the, in the loss of God's blessing in your life, the, 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 the loss of God's power in your life, again, losing fellowship with Christ, losing the joy of the Lord within your life, and losing fellowship with others, other believers. Hebrews 3.12 gives us a warning to believers. It says, take heed, brethren, so speaking to believers, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. So even though a believer has enough faith to believe the gospel, even a believer can be guilty of living of being, in a sense, an unbelieving believer, all right, in the sense that they believe enough, they believe the gospel to be saved, but they, they, they live as an unbeliever in ways. They refuse to take God at his word. They refuse to hear the word of God, to heed the word of God, to apply the word of God. And what are they doing? They're a believer, yes, but in many ways they're acting like an unbeliever. And they haven't rooted unbelief out of their heart. And it hinders the work of God within their life. And they wonder why they don't have victory in their life. They wonder why they don't have joy in their life. They wonder why they don't have close fellowship with God. Maybe it's because of unbelief. Again, take a look at verse number six. The Bible tells us here that Christ marveled because of their unbelief, and he went round about the villages teaching. So we see here the departure of Christ. When Jesus was rejected in the country of the Gadarenes, what did he do? They told him to leave. He left. The people of Nazareth didn't want him, so he left. Jesus will not stay where he is not welcome. And as individual Christians, as a church, and the question is, do we respond to God in faith? When the word of God goes out, what do we do? Are we indifferent about it? Are we hostile towards it? We resist the truth? Or do we heed it? Do we hear it? Do we apply it to our lives? Do we come before the word of God with a sense of expectancy? God, speak to me through your word. God, teach me your word. God, grow me. God, change me. God, help me to understand 
Or do I come before the word and I argue with it? Do I come before the word with, a, with an evil heart of unbelief, as the Bible says? And we see that when Christ was rejected, he went elsewhere. And that's what unbelief does. It is a rejection of Christ's presence, his power, and also his mercy. So we see here today the tragedy of unbelief. And to those who have never believed the gospel, it is a much greater, is a much greater tragedy in the sense that it results in the lake of fire. It does result in eternal damnation. And the people of Nazareth were given one final chance to receive Christ, to receive the mercy of God in Christ. And the question is to unbelievers, again, will you accept? Will you receive Christ? We, ne- we never know when that final chance is, when Christ visits Nazareth for, for the last time. Get to the saved. And I want to ask you this morning in closing, have you allowed the sin of unbelief into your life? And you may be asking, what does unbelief actually look like? Like, what is, how can I tell if that's in my life? Well, ask yourself this, again, how do you respond to the word? Do you take God at his word or do you not take God at his word? Do you hear the word? Do you read the word? Do you believe the word? Do you apply the word? Again, if the answer is no to any of those, then the danger is, again, that this unbelief is creeping up into your life and into your heart. How you respond to the word of God will tell you whether you have a heart full of faith or whether you have a heart full of unbelief. A heart that is full of faith believes the word, hears the word, and applies the word to one's life. Again, recognize the fact that unbelief robs the Christian and the church of God's power. Recognize that unbelief does not always look like hostility to the truth or against the truth. Many times, and especially in the lives of believers, unbelief looks like carelessness, indifference, cold-heartedness, lukewarmness, apathy towards the word of God. That is one reason and why those who get the most out of a sermon, those who get the most out of a church service, are those who come to church saying, God, I want to meet with you. God, I don't want to leave the same way. God, speak to me through your word. Teach me, Lord. Grow me. Change me. Those who come before God and his word with expectant hearts, those are the one that God blesses with more of his word and with more of his blessing and with more of his power in their life. On the other hand, those who get the least out of a sermon, those who get the least out of a church service, are those who come lacking faith. Are those who come maybe with a critical attitude, not to hear the word of God, but to criticize the word of God or to criticize the preaching of the word of God. Those who come and say or have an attitude of, I know it all already. I've heard it all before. Therefore, there's no use in listening. There's no use in hearing. There's no use in applying the word of God. Again, maybe it is somebody who comes before the word with a distracted heart. Their their presence is here physically, but their mind is elsewhere. Maybe it's those who have an indifferent heart. And can say, ah, I, I could care less. Life is fine. I don't want God to disturb me in any way or, 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 or shake up my life in any way. So I'll just let it go in one ear and out the other. Again, if that's you, then I would warn you. Again, of the danger of unbelief, even as a believer, 
the danger of unbelief, God warns us again, not to be turned aside with an evil heart of, un, of unbelief. And what you get out of a church service, what you get out of a sermon, is heavily dependent upon what kind of heart you come to church with. Do you come with a heart of faith, ready to hear the word of God, believe the word of God, heed the word of God, apply the word of God? Or do you come before the word, you come to church with a heart of unbelief? Maybe you want to call it that, but it is a heart of unbelief because you come before the word with a sense of indifference or carelessness or apathy or coldness, a callousness towards the word of God. In which is you this morning? How do you come before the word of God? And if you notice unbelief creeping into your heart, then I would urge you today to get alone with God and ask God again, repent of that sin. That is a sin of unbelief. Repent of that sin. Turn from that unbelief and ask God to help you to cultivate a heart of faith. That comes before the word with a sense of expectancy. Expecting God to meet with you. Expecting God to teach you with a teachable heart, with a humble heart. And you'll be amazed at the mighty works that Christ can do in and through you, in your life, if you will respond to him with a heart of faith. On the other hand, let me warn you. And we find here in Nazareth, Christ could not, Christ could do there no mighty works, the Bible says. Why? Because of their unbelief. You know, and within a, within a church setting, again, if, if, if we have a church, again, where unbelief is present, and don't expect God to bless that church. Don't expect God to do great and mighty things, again, if we're responding to his word with hearts of unbelief or indifference or pride. And how we come before the word of God will determine the level of God's blessing and God's power upon a church and upon individual lives. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Father, we come before you, Lord, and God, I pray that you take the truth of your word or that has been preached this morning. And God, I pray, Lord, you would take my, uh, Lord, feeble efforts, Lord, to exposit your word, Lord, to faithfully proclaim your word. And I pray, God, you would take your word and that you would apply it to hearts, apply it to lives. And God, that you would help us, help each and every one of us, Lord. God, to see the danger of unbelief. God, unbelief is one of those sins that is subtle. It's, It's one of those sins that we can hide within our hearts and nobody else sees. God, but I pray that as we examine our hearts this morning. I pray that if, if, if we find even an ounce of unbelief within us, God, I pray we'd cast it aside. God, I pray we'd confess our sin to you, Lord. God, we'd humble ourselves before you. And God, that we'd learn to respond to you, not with unbelief. That is often seen with, with indifference towards the word, coldness towards the word, resistance to the word. God, but that we would respond with hearts of true faith before you. God, I pray that this would be a church, Lord. God, where you can do many mighty works because of the faith of your people. Lord, we need your presence. God, we need your power. God, we need your working amongst us. And God, I pray we'd root unbelief out of our hearts. And God, we'd come before your word ready to hear, ready to heed, ready to apply it to our lives. God, bless the remainder of this service, Lord, I pray. God, helps to respond with hearts of faith to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you would at this time, take your hymnal out. Let's turn to number 51.